the creatives and the curious. My name is Pendo, and welcome to 12 Point Font, my writing podcast where I answer questions, conduct interviews, give advice, point out resources, gush over my favorite books, writers, and, well, things, and just generally babble as I muddle my way through the world of words. I did not take a big enough breath that time. Today is episode 47, and we will be covering the glossa. But first, the idiomatic expression for today comes from Rwanda, and it is, please excuse my awful pronunciation, Ibirika Ifi, which translates to a kettle of fish. Now hold on up there, put your Google machine away to find out what that means. Just stick around till the end of the show, where I will have masterfully crafted for you a writing prompt to go along with that idiom. The Glossa Poem. Okay, so I know that this is a much less frequently spoken about form of poetry, so you may not be familiar with it, and that's okay. I wasn't really aware of some of these more, I don't want to say popular, but I'll say common or technical forms of fixed form poetry before I really began to kind of deep dive into poetry. And I've been an avid poetry reader since Dr. Seuss. And yes, I believe Dr. Seuss's poetry, I will die on this hill. The glossa or gloss poem is a Spanish form of poetry. It was actually a form of Spanish court poetry that for some reason hasn't really translated popularly. Is that a word? Popularly? Hasn't been popularly translated isn't popular in English, considering the prevalence of the haiku as popular poetry. The glossa utilizes the epigraph, and with the emphasis on intertextuality these days, you'd think it would be more popular, but maybe not. So what is an epigraph and what is intertextuality? Do either of these random words have any import when trying to write a good poem? Short answer, yes. Long answer, well, let's dive into it. What is an epigraph, and how does it relate to the glossa? An epigraph is a literary device where one work is quoted in another, generally at the beginning or introduction, generally for the purpose of indicating a theme. That's where you run into the idea of intertextuality. Now, we'll probably have a whole episode on intertextuality later, maybe not this season, maybe next season. But intertextuality are works, texts, that play off of each other, influence each other, and occasionally reference each other. Pendo, what is the difference between an allusion and an epigraph? Good question. It's essentially the difference between something that's explicit and something that's implicit. Epigraph is explicit. It is a literal direct quotation. A short quote, but a direct piece of one work that has been transplanted into another for the intent of drawing parallels or contextualizing or referencing, etc, etc. Basically, an epigraph is a quote related to a work at the beginning of the work. Now that we've gone on a long diatribe about epigraphs, let's discuss the glossa and why it's important. Because the glossa is not the most popular form of poetry, the actual structure of it has not been completely explored, so forgive me, I will do my best. There are two parts to a glossa. The text, also known as the cabeza, and the glossa proper occasionally referred to as a gloss on or glossing. The first part of the poem, the text, is an epigraph, generally four lines of generally another poem. So a poet might have been reading some poetry, brushing up on some canon poetry, when they run up against something that really resonates with them. Let's say William Blake. They may then decide to meditate on this poem, the tiger. In this instance, they could appropriate the first stanza of the poem as the text or cabeza in their own glossa. So it would begin, tiger, tiger, burning bright, in the forest of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? Now that a text has been chosen, the poet may then begin to form the gloss on. 
the gloss on is the poet's opportunity to comment on or about or around the text. Here's where things can get tricky. We'll look at the formal structure, the one with the most consensus first. Generally, the formal glossa is made of four ten-line stanzas, though four, five, and eight-line stanzas are common as well. Always four stanzas, though, or groups of four stanzas. So you could have four four-line stanzas, or four five-line stanzas, or four eight-line stanzas as well. However, we are going to talk about the ten-line stanza. In a glossa, the first nine lines are meant for the glossing or commentary. The tenth line takes the first line from the cabeza, which we're going to call stanza zero. This is going to sound really complicated, but it's really not so bad. Just in case, though, I will have a PDF breakdown on my website in the show notes. So, four stanzas, not including the four lines taken from the other work, the cabeza, which we're calling stanza zero. Ten lines per stanza, we're going to call these line one through ten. So the first line is line one, the second line is line two, the third line, line three, and so on and so forth. Line. Sorry, not sorry. Stanza zero has our four barred lines. We're going to delineate these by letters, A through D. So the first line of stanza zero, the cabeza, is line A, then the second line, line B, the third line, line C, and the fourth line, D. So if you're looking at this on a page, you're gonna have A, B, C, D, new stanza, lines 1 through 10, new stanza, lines 1 through 10, and so on. Very brief, hopefully less confusing recap. Five technical stanzas. Stanza zero, that's our epigraph, that's our cabeza, that's our four lines. Okay, our borrowed work, our tiger tiger. Then four stanzas, each of them with 10 lines. Now, the 10th line of each stanza will take a new line from stanza zero. From the cabeza. So in the first stanza it'll be line 1, line 2, line 3, all the way to 9, then line 10 will be line A from stanza 0. In our case this will be tiger tiger burning bright. The next stanza follows the same pattern. The poet, that's you, writes lines 1 through 9, then line 10 will be line B from stanza 0 in our case, in the forest of the night. The same thing with stanza three, except for now line 10 is line C from stanza zero. What immortal hand or I? Then the fourth and final stanza will end with line D from stanza zero. Could frame thy fearful symmetry. We love a half rhyme, don't we? We, we don't, this is a mockery, I jest. Language was different back then. Probably, I'm not a historian. Okay, so we've kind of got our stanzas down. Let's talk rhyme scheme. The traditional glossa rhyme scheme is simple. In every stanza, obviously not including zero, lines six, nine, and 10 should rhyme. By this I mean end rhyme. That is that the last word or the last part of the last word in lines six and nine should rhyme with the last word in line 10. So, going off of our William Blake example, if line 10 was tiger, tiger, burning bright, lines 6 and 9 would end with a word that rhymes with bright, like fright or spite or might or plight or despite. The same goes for the next three stanzas. So, the next rhyme would be night, then I, then symmetry, tree, try. So, the last thing, kinda. Because you're using borrowed words, we've gotta be extra careful, compadres, about credit. In a glossa, the words that aren't ours must be made known. This is done through stanza zero and through visual indication. At the end of stanza zero, include the name of the author, just like you would a quote, because it is a quote. Don't worry, this doesn't need to count as part of the poem. I mean, it can go wild, y'all. But 
it does ensure that readers know that you are properly crediting the work that is not yours. The other thing is the visual indication. The most common way to do this is by italicizing the borrowed lines. So all of stanza zero and each tenth line would be in italics. I suppose you could bold these lines or include quotation marks if you're looking to fit a certain visual aesthetic, but the most common delineation is that if it's in italics, it's borrowed. Easy peasy, keep your hands clean. That's it. That's the glossa. Wait a minute, Pendo. How am I supposed to actually write this thing, though? Good question. Honestly, however you want. In fact, even though I've explained for you the traditional glossa form, you're allowed to break that form, be untraditional, be unconventional, have four stanzas of four lines, make all of them rhyme, make none of them rhyme, put it in iambic pentameter or tetrameter, no meter, that's cool, use song lyrics or a commercial jingle or grab a quote from a book you're reading and segment it into lines. All you really need is that stanza zero, that cabeza, that epigraph, the borrowed lines from a published work and then to integrate them into the end of your stanzas. Okay, cool, but how am I supposed to actually write this thing, write this thing? Ah, right. Now you've got these words in front of you, and they're not yours, and you're just not suddenly epiphanizing. Happens to the best of us. It's fine. It happens. Fixed form poetry can get you good like that. Here are three ways I recommend, let's say, rousing your creative mind, poking at your muse, if you will. One, consider picking something you're really emotionally responsive to. This is great with song lyrics, for example. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily recommend starting with song lyrics for the same reason that they can be so powerful is they're attached to melody. In this case, rap may be your best option because generally lyrics are a bigger, if not the biggest focus in that kind of music. The glossa is a silent medium though, so you may not get the same impact with just lyrics, no music. Often the music can overshadow the lyrics as well, but this isn't a talk about the dangers of using song lyrics as poetic fuel. This is about picking something you're feeling. For example, let's say you're listening to a podcast and they say something that just, just grinds your gears just real good. Pick that snippet out and write your anger. Anger is really good writing fuel because we've often got a lot to say about things that just rile us up. So option one is pick something you're really emotionally responsive to. Though I would recommend just doing this in general. Anyways, that not really working for you or not working well enough? Here's number two. Number two, start a conversation with the work. The heckle does that mean? Fair enough. What I mean is ask the work some questions. Write out what you would suspect the answers might be. I mean, go line by line. Let's look at our Blake example. What questions could we ask and answer? How might they be answered? Tiger, tiger, burning bright. What makes you burn? Is it your glowy fur? Do you know you burn? Do you know the impact your stripy body has on our language? No, I bet you don't. You are a beast, not a person. And yet, see, already we're getting somewhere. All right. Dialogue with an unresponsive author and their inanimate inventions are just not doing it for you. Try number three. Number three. Free association. What, pray tell, is free association? It is pretty close to exactly what it sounds like. Just go line by line and make a mind map. Write down words that rhyme, words that are opposites, go on thought tangents that are somewhat related, or even barely related. Anything that feels relevant, write it down. You don't have to do this all in one day. Give it time. Meditate on the borrowed words, just think about them, and then come back to the mind map and keep associating. For example, line B of Blake's poem, in the forest of the night, let's associate. 
forest trees bark cold night plate sight fright what is night what is a night forest Ooh, interesting visuals what does night forest sound like smell like taste like feel like tiger in night forest scary creepy burning bright Ooh, beacon and so on and so forth until you have something to focus on. For me, I really like the visual of a large predator, except instead of hiding in the shadows, they are illuminating the way. I can see it. So I'd probably want to write a gloss describing this incredible visual of a glowing tiger leading the way. I may connect it thematically to the way this poem has been a beacon in many a literature class and how something so foreign can be so present. You might want to write about this, or you might want to write about the idea of a forest. Maybe your focus is there. What might that feel like or taste like? That works just as well. That's the point of free association, just circling overhead kind of until you can narrow down on something or expand on something else. In this case, you're trying to create something entirely new from something borrowed. That is the Glossa. Okie doke, it is time for the book of the week. Y'all, I recently read The Art of Memoir by Mary Carr. I cannot even, I have lost my ability to. If you have any interest in creative narrative nonfiction, this, 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 this was so immensely helpful. Even if you're not jumping onto memoir, just in terms of how nonfiction is written, the place truth has in storytelling, the idea of veracity in memory, what an author owes their audience, and morality in publishing, this book I found incredibly valuable and certainly worth a read. Also, it comes in audiobook format, and for any other abled listeners or my podcast people for y'all with a busy schedule that's the art of memoir by mary carr all right that's the end of the episode that is it if you want more come on over and hang out with me on instagram or twitter at pendoland or check out my website pendoland.com if you are not yet tired of my voice make sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are on the intro and outro for the podcast is meadows by ramzoid of course all this and anything i talked about in the show will be linked in the show notes as well also if you have a second it would be super cool if you could give this a great rating on whatever podcasting platform you are on it just helps out a super super duper bunch with visibility thank you so much for listening all the way through and don't worry now for the idiomatic expression of the day today's was a kettle of fish the idea of this is basically a situation that wasn't the expected one but also wasn't necessarily a bad one kind of like if you wanted oranges but you got apples not what you were expecting but not necessarily a bad thing so, writing exercise. This week, I want you to go ahead and write about a time when you thought something was going to be awful, but it turned out not to be so bad. If you want a bit of a challenge, write a fictional scenario. Use your characters. Want to make it even more challenging? Take a section of the short piece you wrote and turn it into a glossa. That's right. Use your own work to fuel something. I bet it won't be so bad. I bet it'll be a kettle of fish. I make no apologies for my jokes. Listen, you've got this. Go be free, you wonderful writer, you. This has been 12 Point Font reminding you to stay creative, stay curious, and stay writing. Until next time, that is goodbye. <laughs>